This episode is proudly sponsored by EverlyWell.com. Physician-approved lab testing made easy with results you can understand. Get at-home health tests that are private, fast, simple, and affordable. Take control of your health at EverlyWell.com. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're having a difficult conversation about a very important subject that is indeed part of harvesting happiness, and that is peaceful endings, making bold and empowered choices about life as we age and before we go. Most of us who are listening, and myself included, have aging parents and loved ones. Here's an interesting fact. The current estimate is that there are approximately 50 million senior citizens in America. Those are people over the age of 65 who are in various states of health, activity, and agility. And really what we're talking about is because we all come to go, how do we want that to look? And my first guest this morning has written a book that addresses this subject entitled At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. My first guest today is Dr. Samuel Harrington, a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Wisconsin Medical School. He has worked at Sibley Memorial Hospital as the Patient Safety Officer Representative to the Johns Hopkins Medicine Board of Trustees, and his service on the board of a nonprofit hospice in Washington, D.C., informed his passion for helping aged patients make appropriate end-of-life decisions. Dr. Harrington is currently retired, but I don't think you're really retired, Sam, and you reside in Stonington, Maine, and Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Oh, Lisa, thank you very much for having me. Oh, uh, well, it's, it's a pleasure. This is a difficult conversation, and I think it's important to sort of just step right into that. I'm, I'm happy to give it a try. Yeah. Let's talk about um, 
what that good death looks like and the limits and failures of American medicine. Because I think um, from what I glean, you're critical a little bit of the way we as a nation have approached uh, our end of life. Well, I am. And in particular about uh, our approach toward the end of life for elderly patients, I think it's pertinent to note that uh, 65,000 people over the age of 85 die annually in the intensive care units of American hospitals. And 90% of those people probably do not want to be there at the end of their life. Uh, and I think that it's uh, further pertinent to, well, so my point is um, that is over treatment uh, based on a variety of systematic problems that we have in medicine and sort of overlooking the needs of elderly patients, which are different than the needs of younger patients with uh, similar uh, diagnoses, uh, diagnoses. Elderly patients die of chronic illnesses with acute illnesses superimposed on them, and elderly patients really cannot be cured in the same way. So we have to address them slightly differently. And I wrote, I wrote the book to empower elderly patients and their families to make better end-of-life decisions and to avoid the medicalized death that most elderly patients would prefer to avoid. I think you've hit the nail on the head about the medicalized death. And I, I have an interesting example. Yesterday I was talking to a girlfriend whose mother, um, who's in her 80s, was just diagnosed with breast cancer. So I asked her what was the protocol? What was she going to do? And she said she's going to do nothing. And I said, oh, really? Nothing? She goes, yes, because she's frail. She has other medical conditions. And there will be other things that will supersede the need for intervention at this point in her life besides the breast cancer. Well, for better or worse, that person does not need to read my book. They've figured it out, and that's absolutely excellent. Uh, because if you start treating, the un laws of unintended, unintended consequences will take over, and something will supersede uh, the treatment and some other, either another uh, illness that's already in process in that frail woman or a complication from the treatment. and. Uh, so she's in that zone where saying no to aggressive medical care is completely appropriate because saying yes to aggressive medical care is fraught with complications and, um, and unintended consequences. And I think these are the empowered choices that you're speaking of in your book, At Peace. It, it, they are. It, the idea is that if uh, it is a fact that 80 or 90 percent of elderly patients would prefer to die at home, but it is fundamental that if one wants to die at home, one has to know when it is appropriate to say no to medical care because nobody wants to die prematurely. But if one wants to die at home, one has to be prepared to say no to hospitalization. Hospitalizations can spin out of control. And going home is a much surer way to uh, assure oneself of having a quieter, more peaceful death. And it's understanding uh, the it's understanding the course of one's illness, the prognosis, the likely ways that that illness will eventuate in death. And that kind of understanding allows people to make better decisions. 
In your book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life, you share your own experience uh, with your parents and some of your patients. Talk a little bit about the journey with your folks. Well, um, I'll start with my father because it was a discussion I was having with my father about the treatment of an aortic aneurysm in his abdomen that informed me about his perspectives much more than the rather dry academic kind of decision-making we'd gone through when we worked out his his written advance directive of some years before. But the discussion about the aortic aneurysm uh, came up when he was a widower. He was 88. He was seemingly in perfect health. He was quite uh, he was comparatively active, living completely independently. And uh, his internist advised him that they had found an aneurysm that was at a critical size and that it had to be repaired because a rupture would have been fatal. And a rupture of this ballooned blood vessel in his abdomen was something that he was, with which he as a lawyer was familiar because he had had a client die of an, of an aneurysm rupture decades before. So he knew what was, what was ahead. And yet, despite the fact that two internists and three surgeons had said he needed a massive surgery to permanently repair uh, the aneurysm, I, as a physician, had said, gee, Dad, you're 88. A giant surgery risks some complications. Perhaps we should do a procedure uh, like a giant cardiac catheterization to strengthen the aneurysm and uh, keep you and you'll live comfortably for three to five more years. And my father pointed out, my father turned to me and he said, he sort of furrowed his brow, he pointed his finger, he clenched his jaw and he said, Sam, why would I want to fix something that is going to carry me away the way that I want to go? Mm. And he meant quickly and decisively. And he, that was a vision that he would uh, decline emergency surgery, take palliative medications and die quite rapidly within hours perhaps. Uh, that I could take uh, to my sisters with whom we were make, helping him make decisions. And uh, it informed all the future decisions that we made as in if there was an opportunity to let something happen uh, that would be decisive, would allow him to pass away quickly, we were to take that opportunity. So uh, that, that's how I started on the, that really crystallized the purpose of this book to share that concept of a vision. This is a very interesting story, and I want to hear more about this and and bring up some other points after the break. And we're going to take that right now. We're talking with Dr. Samuel Harrington today about his book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. To learn more about Dr. Harrington and his work, please visit www.samharrington.com. On Twitter, he is at GapierSam, and on Facebook, SP. Harrington. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Wait just a sec. Before we head to the break, I want to share a cool health product with you. Let's be real. Going to the doctor is terrible and finding time to get important lab testing done is almost impossible. Plus this process is tedious and expensive, but now you can complete your testing from the comfort of home. Thanks to Everlywell. Everlywell is an at-home health testing company that offers a variety of tests, ranging from food sensitivity to metabolism to thyroid functioning. The tests are private, simple, and all processed through certified labs. 
All you have to do is head on over to everlywell.com, choose your tests, and they'll be shipped directly to your doorstep. Then once you complete your sample collection and send it back to Everlywell certified labs, they'll process your sample and send you your results via Everlywell's secure online platform within just five days. Everlywell takes all the guesswork out of lab testing and puts the power into your hands to complete a range of important health tests all from home. I ordered the sleep and stress test because I'm writing a book about the relationship between good sleep, stress management, and well-being, and I wanted to know more about my stress hormones. The process was easy peasy. Four steps, register, prep, collect, and return. My lab report will be delivered any day now. So no more sitting around in waiting rooms. Head on over to everlywell.com and use the promo code HAPPINESS to take 15% off your first order. Once again, head to everlywell.com and don't forget the promo code HAPPINESS at checkout for 15% off of your first order. Take control of your health today with Everlywell's at-home health tests. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are having a conversation about a difficult subject, but one that is important to have, and that is peaceful endings making bold and empowered choices about life as we age and before we go. I'm talking with Dr. Sam Harrington, who is the author of At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. Sam, prior to the break, you were talking about your dad's story and um, a decision that he made about his medical care that allowed him, um, A, to be empowered, but the dignity of going out just the way he had planned. Well, thank you. He he did, in fact, um, listen to my proposition to undergo the procedure, uh, which uh, did strengthen his aneurysm. So he, he did proceed to have that done. And we didn't think about his aneurysm for several more years. 
as a result of that procedure, he met 12 great-grandchildren and he lived three very vigorous years. But he also lived two subsequent years that were not so vigorous and one that was uh, involved much more debility and dependency on others than he had hoped. And his mantra for the last year of his life, he died at 93, close to 94, his mantra was, I have lived too long. Mm. So the point is that the treatment that he did undertake bought some good time, but it also put him in the position to have what he perceived of as not so good time. And so he had second thoughts about that procedure. Now, during the last year of his life, uh, or actually before it, about 18 months before he passed away, his doctors called up to point out that his aneurysm was re-expanding and he needed to have the procedure repeated. And at that point, he said, no, thank you. Uh, he will not do that. And he did uh, cancel. All, he thanked all his doctors and he canceled all his future appointments. And about a year after that, he went into hospice care based on uh, generalized frailty and uh, what in medicine is called geriatric failure to thrive, but in what I call dying of old age. And he passed away comfortably at home about seven to eight months after going into hospice. You bring up a very interesting point about about dying at home. And, and as you said, when we started the conversation, it's where most of us would choose to go. I have the great fortune of having a, a 93-year-old aunt in my life. And um, she has all of her marbles. She is a, a very determined woman. She is aging in place quite comfortably. And we are making adaptations to the home to accommodate her. And she is very determined that she wants to be carried out from her home and no one will intervene with that. And I have to say, I am I respect that. Uh, I think I do, too. I think that's a, a, an excellent attitude. I think that the likelihood of anything helping her by going into a hospital for treatment is comparatively small because at an advanced age, uh, hospitalizations cause us to become weaker and more frail faster than uh, desired. And I think that uh, taking, spending good time at home is a much better uh, way to choose the last few days or last few months or years of life. Because if you trade a good day at home for two bad days in the hospital, what have you really come up with? And if you trade a good day at home for a complication in a hospital, uh, you've really lost that, uh, that bet. And if you trade a good day at home for uh, a week in a, in a clinic getting treatments, you know, you've isolated yourself from your family. Uh, you've put yourself in the hands of other people. You've lost some control. Uh, I think her decision-making is very good. I, I agree. And I, I want to also add that she had a hip replacement at the age of 91. So she, she got her hip and, and nothing could stop her after she rehabbed from that, which is pretty impressive. Well, that's very impressive. But, and, I, and she won that bet. But eventually, we lose our bets when we get when we get hospitalized after a certain age. 
you know, and I think the conversation um, that we are having in our family now, it's it's the conversation and also a little bit of a battle is allowing support to come into the home and being able to accept that the things that she has done all of her life on her own. She lives in a rural part of New York State, so it's farmland up there. And she's a hardy woman, right? She lives in an old uh stone farmhouse and up until now has gone up and down those stairs and accepting care in the home is the challenge. But that is a challenge. Uh, I don't really address that particular issue in my book because that's kind of a, a social decision as opposed to a medical decision, but it is a challenge to get older patients to uh, accept uh, and to and to sort of take care of themselves in a way that is less risky. I mean, it certainly is. Uh, if you if your aunt were on a single floor dwelling, that would be safer than doing stairs. On the other hand, doing stairs keeps her uh, legs strong. So let me touch on what the attributes of a good death are, because these have been very well studied, and I think the best article on that subject came out of the University of Wisconsin uh, by, uh, uh, the author was Karen Kell, K-E-H-L. And uh, she had 13 attributes of a good death, but I'm going to condense it to five. And control is the single most important attribute. And that doesn't mean you control when you die or how you die so much as control the circumstances as your aunt is trying to do. She is staying at home and not ceding control to people in the hospital. Uh, the second most important attribute is comfort, and that means, of course, the absence of pain. Uh, closure is the third most important attribute, meaning having time to uh, reconcile with family and friends toward the end. And then affirmation, being af having one's values affirmed and appreciated, which you are doing by working with your aunt uh, to keep her at home. And trust, and that is the fifth most important attribute. And trust means, um, you know, being surrounded, familiar surroundings, friendly surroundings, people caring for you that you trust and who trust you. But if you flipped all those attributes to something to their opposite and control became helplessness and comfort became pain, closure became isolation, affirmation became denial, and trust became frustration, well, then you've defined what it's like to die in the intensive care unit, helplessness, mm -hmm. pain, isolation, etc. And um, so what you are doing with your aunt is creating uh, the characteristics of, for a, a potentially good death. And also uh, talk about the importance of understanding the diagnoses, understanding the diseases that we are told we have. Well, I think that doctors fall short in terms of educating patients on their diagnosis, and they, and they fall short on educating patients about their prognosis. And if you don't really understand the course of your illness or the likely course, and you don't understand what your prognosis is, you can't possibly make good decisions. So, for example, with my mother, when she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, uh, it was clear to me as a physician, she was 82, she was frail, uh, she had osteoporosis, she had previously had breast cancer. Well, stage four lung cancer at that time had a median life expectancy of 10 months. 
And that is very difficult to share with a patient. And it's even more difficult, perhaps, to share with your mother. Mm. But I made it my duty to do that so that she and my father didn't waste time and energy on other things uh, and uh, sort of on false hope. And I knew at age 82 and frail, she was unlikely to be one of the people who got to the 10-month mark. That would be reserved for somebody who was prematurely diagnosed or diagnosed prematurely with lung cancer at age 50, let's say. So I sat down with my mother and, and advised her of this. I advised her that median life expectancy of 10 months meant that if 100 people were in her apartment, it would be very crowded, but in 10 months, 50 of them would be gone, and we just didn't know which 50. And she looked at me and she asked me, am I, am I going to die, Sam? And I pointed out that yes, the answer was yes. And in, so instead of struggling to uh, with aggressive treatment, she focused on getting to my daughter's wedding about five months in the future, and um, we kept that in mind. That was our goal. And fortunately, we got there, and she, uh, and and that was, you know, and she died quietly at home about four months after that, about nine months after the diagnosis. Well, I think the goals, you know, having these goals, these small milestones for our elders to reach, um, in effect, is life extending. You know, they have all these ailments. Let's say, you know, lots of medications. That's what I I see going on in in my aging parents and in the case of the aunt. But you know, you give them these milestones to make, like a fiftieth wedding anniversary or a child graduating from high school or a wedding or a birth or a cruise. And that helps extend. It gives quality of life and extends it. Uh, I agree. And it in many, and one of the reasons for that is it keeps them from uh, trying to have an open-ended existence and struggling uh, to have more treatment instead of less. Because more treatment, of course, as I've mentioned, is fraught with complications and might, in fact, um, cause somebody to miss one of these milestones. Well, we are nearly out of time. And I, I can't believe, you know, it's hard to have a difficult conversation like this and say, well, I wish I could talk more about that. But I do <laughs> wish I could talk more about this with you because it's um, important. And the book is an important one. And I urge you to... Um, uh, I urge you, I urge our listeners to go out and purchase At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. My guest today has been Dr. Samuel Harrington or Dr. Sam. Um, you can learn more at his website, www.samharrington.com. On Twitter, he is at Gap Year Sam. And on Facebook, you can find him at SP. Harrington. Sam, thank you so much, A, for writing this and, and B, for sharing with me and our listeners today. Lisa, I appreciate the opportunity. The time really has flown by. It, it, it has. And um, the book has been um, reviewed by some really wonderful people. I want to just uh, add that Andrea Mitchell, who is anchor and correspondent at NBC News, has written an invaluable roadmap for all of us facing the challenge of critical end-of-life decisions for friends, families, and ultimately ourselves, Dr. Harrington demystifies medical terminology with an experienced, transparent, and literate guide for boomers like myself and our aging parents, a valuable addition to the literature. Sam, thanks again. Thank you very much, Lisa. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. 
Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. We're having a difficult conversation about a very important subject, and that is peaceful endings, making bold and empowered choices about life as we age and before we go. My first guest today is Dr. Jessica Nuttick-Zitter, author of Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, it, it is a pleasure, and it is a pleasure to delve into this very delicate subject with you because you have a new book entitled Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. Talk about what brought you to want to write about a subject that many of us think is unmentionable? Well, you know, it started out really just being a continuation of my lifelong journal um, where I was trying to process a lot of the feelings that I was having in my early years as an as a intern resident and then pulmonary and critical care doctor um, where I was seeing a lot of suffering and I wasn't really figuring out uh, any alternative approaches to to managing that suffering, and I I wrote in order to process my my own suffering, my own moral distress, and eventually, as I started to change my own paradigm about how we should deliver the best care, um, I started I found the palliative care movement, and then found that I was able to treat patients in a way that made me feel a lot more optimistic and certainly resulted in what looked to me like much better ends of life for a lot of the patients I was caring for. And so then I began writing more optimistic pieces and it congealed into a book. And so that's how it, that's how it happened. And a great book it is. Congratulations, by the way, it, it, that is like giving birth and then some. <laughs> <laughs> True. Let's um, talk a little bit about palliative care, because some of our listeners might not know exactly what that means. To palliate uh, comes from this Latin word palliare, which means to cloak. And try to imagine a person taking a big, warm, fuzzy quilt and 
cloaking a patient who's suffering. And it's really about managing symptoms, managing distress, managing grief, managing anxiety, depression, anything that might come up that could affect a person. And that's what palliative care is all about. And, you know, obviously we palliative care practitioners are skilled at the management, the medical management of, of, of again, symptoms, you know, physical symptoms as well as emotional symptoms. But we're also very skilled at communication between uh, the healthcare team and patients, in, in you know, pro- providing information transfer in a as sensitive a way as possible, so that patients can really and their families can absorb information and ultimately be empowered to make better decisions that that are more corresponding to who they are as people. And palliative care in America is different perhaps than it is in some other countries who may be more progressive in the conscious dying movement. So I think that what you what you speak of and you write about is very important because it's it's good to know that we a don't have to die alone, that we don't need to die hooked up to machines or even in a hospital for that matter. Right. Right. Um, I think that the beauty here is that once we, you know, use these communication skills that I was just talking about to really bring out preferences and goals and and values of of an individual patient, um, then we can really start to figure out what's most important and start to attend to creating that environment for them. And when we talk about um, advancements in medicine in the 21st century, people are living longer, and in many cases that is a good thing. We all want our loved ones to stick around as long as possible, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. This is true. I think, you know, as the median age has skyrocketed, really, um, you know, we are seeing a lot of different things rising, which is a beautiful thing that we can have our loved ones around for longer, but we're seeing the rise of, you know, the incidence of uh, increasing incidence of dementia and other types of cancers, very serious cancers, and things that we hadn't necessarily seen when people were dying at younger ages. And so I think we've got to adjust um, the way we think about illness a little bit now and, and start to understand that it can be much more serious and, 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 and it can, and as bodies age and minds age and brains age, there's a lot of things that our technologies can do, but they can't, they can't fix certain types of processes that have, that, that are going to be more prevalent in, in, in older populations. Nor can we stave off the exit door, right? I mean, this is the other part of the discussion (laughs) as much as we'd like to. Right. Right. Absolutely. As long as we, we want a magic pill, we want, you know, some kind of magic miracle fix, and um, we're all sort of looking for that, because as old as the human psyche, to try to evade death. But the reality is, even though we've got more tools and technology now than we ever did, I mean, certainly the past hundred years, we've created all sorts of fantastic and miraculous technologies, but they still cannot stave off death. When you witnessed your first code in the ER, when like it got real, what, how did you react? What were you thinking? What were you feeling besides what you were trained to do? What were the other parts at work? Well, what was happening at the time was, you know, I had, it was right after I'd finished medical school and um, I was just in the beginning of my internship. And I had for, you know, I really was excited about being this 
very intensive type of doctor and using a whole bunch of, you know, fast reflexive actions and different kinds of technologies to save life. And so I was looking forward to my first code and I had memorized every protocol. What do you do with this type of cardiac arrest or that type of cardiac arrest? And so the code buzzer went off and, and we all ran, you know, up a few flights of stairs towards this room. And I just was so excited. And as I ran in the door, I saw that this patient was very sick and clearly had been sick for years. And now I could just tell by looking at this person that this person seemed to have lost all life. This was, there was not an ounce of fat or muscle on this body. And you could, you could just see that, that this person was really beyond saving. There were, there were residents already doing chest compressions. I could hear the person's chest cracked and breaking and it was, it was horrifying. And I was then pulled into it myself and, um, it was a shocking experience for me. It really was, i say, the first time I realized that this uh, could be pretty brutal. But because I didn't have any other model for how to do things, I just thought that was part of what we were supposed to do. That was just what we all did. And it seemed like, you know, there were going to be some bad codes, but, you know, it was still the right approach, and you, you still needed to sort of treat every patient that way with this default high, high-intensity intervention. The, the heroic intervention to do everything humanly possible when, in fact, some of us may not desire that, which talks speaks to another element of this equation as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's really, there are certain people, there are certain situations where I would argue strongly that there's no need to ask questions. You just you just go in there and do what you need to do. A young person who, you know, has trauma or, or, or even a, a, a young person with a, a reversible virus like polio, I mean, you take that person and you support them and you try everything you can to get them through the illness and through the trauma so that you can come out the, they can come out the other side. The people that I think require more communication, conversation before we default to these automatic life-saving procedures are people who are in a different category of illness, um, whose illness is, is progressive, long-standing, and possibly not going to, you know, and, and not going to be fixed by life support. Um, the illness itself may be very advanced. And so those people, I think you have to be very careful about before you assume and, and rush into things and ask and talk. Um, sometimes you don't have time, and then in those situations, I agree that we default to prolongation of life and then have the conversation afterwards. But most of the time, we have time to talk about these things first. We're going to go to a break. Um, and before we do, I just want to bring up a, a, a phrase that I learned from your book, and that is the end-of-life conveyor belt. And so I'd like to talk about that when we return. The book we are talking about today is Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, written by Dr. Jessica Zitter, MD. To learn more, please visit jessicazitter.com. On Twitter, you can find her at Jessica Zitter. And on Facebook, guess what? Jessica Zitter. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if, 
Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7. And we're talking about something that is most probably not a conversation that any of us want to have, but we need to have. We are talking about creating a happier ending and what it means to look at our lives as we near the exit door and what we want that to look like. And my guest today is Dr. Jessica Zitter, MD. She is the author of Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. So Jessica, at the break, we were, we were talking about why it's important to have these conversations because it makes us appreciate our lives that we are living a lot more. Absolutely. I think it, 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 that's one reason, I mean, of course, that it helps you be more conscious and aware of your life and, 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 take it, and not take it for granted, but also because it helps you actually live better all the way through your life. If you are preparing and planning, your life right until the very end is going to be much more driven by your preferences and values than if you didn't talk about these things. Agreed. I, I mentioned prior to the start of the show that I co-facilitate an end-of-life group, coincidentally, at the Malibu Senior Center, and I do this as part of my community service. And I find this group to be the most joyful older people that I have ever encountered. They are very aware of what they want, what their desires are, what they want that ending to look like. Um, and, and talking about that end of life conveyor belt that you've written about is what is on their mind. And it makes them want to be more alive and happy with the years remaining. Absolutely. It, it reminds me of a, a conversation I had at an assisted living facility. They invited me, their end of life care, uh, their end of life interest group invited me to come and speak. This was several years ago. And I remember it was a lot of mostly women um, in their mid-80s, and they were just this amazing group of firecrackers. And I remember they said to me after the talk, they invited me up for a drink, and we sat down and we're drinking, and, uh, and one of them said to me, well, we all have our pulsed forms filled out. I don't know if you know what a pulsed form is, physician order for life-sustaining treatment, which is a, which is a, a, it's a doctor's order that basically says do not you know, do not intubate this person, do not do CPR. There's, you can check off whichever treatments you do or do not want. 
And I said, wow, you know, why? You know, you're all living these <laughs> wonderful lives. You're, you're in your mid-80s. You know, if, if God forbid you, you got a pneumonia or a urinary tract infection, why wouldn't you want to come to the intensive care unit and have me, you know, intubate you and stabilize you and, and possibly get you back to, you know, your life here at this wonderful place where you've got your families and you're, you've got lovely food? And they, I, I was surprised that every single one of them said, we, we just don't want to take the risk that we won't get back to this life. We don't want to be in a situation where we'll, we'll be risking that. And it was surprising to me because I thought, well, if I were in my mid-80s and pretty healthy, I'd probably want the doctor to try to resuscitate me. If it wasn't working, then we could have another conversation. My family knows that I wouldn't want to stay in a prolonged state on a, on a breathing machine. But I would want to try, but they were very clear. And I thought, you know what, who am I to tell these people what their preferences should be? And that's the beauty of this whole thing is it's very personal and everyone's allowed to make their own choices and their own preferences, but people need to be brought into that conversation. And what you write about is a very intimate exploration of this area. You know, it's, um, I mean, I find it kind of exquisitely intimate when people start talking in this way because it's it is the last frontier. It's not something that is spoken about openly up until now, and I'm I'm hoping that that national conversation is changing. I think it is, but you write from such a beautiful uh, perspective. You know, the stories, patient stories. Maybe you could share another one or two with us. Oh my goodness, I have so many. <laughs> I know well, you do. <laughs> Um, let's see. Um, well, I'll tell you the story that's the epilogue of my book, which is, I think, one of the, the most sort of heartfelt stories. But it's, it's only one of a number of these types of stories. This was a woman who um, had very serious metastatic lung cancer, and she loved life. She was young. She was in her early 60s. She had children and grandchildren and loved to drink wine and just, just loved to garden. And when she found out she had cancer, she said, that's okay, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to do it. And so she went through course after course of chemotherapy, and she was willing to fight, but she wasn't getting better. And by the time I met her, it was in the intensive care unit, and she came in in shock, which means that she had absolutely no blood pressure. And we resuscitated her, and we got her blood pressure up. And, you know, when I came in the room the next day after we'd sort of gotten her fixed for that temporary fix, you know, her family said, okay, we're ready to go again. Give, bring on some more chemotherapy. And I realized that they, they just didn't seem to realize that this was a progressive illness and she was close to death. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I succeeded in my job here. I got her blood pressure up, and she's, they're supposed to send her to the floor now to another team. But I think this woman needs to hear from me because I don't know if anyone's going to tell her that she's actually dying. I think she needs that information. And so I was terrified, but I sat down and told this is only a few years ago. So it's, I've been doing this for a long time, and I still find it difficult. I sat down on the side of her bed. Her daughter kind of glared at me because she seemed to see that I was coming in with some bad news. It was like a no bad news zone. And I said, <laughs> you know, I think that we're, we're coming to a point where I think, you know, if we continue along this path, you're going to end up really being attached to machines. And I, I want to make sure that's what you want. Um, and she, they essentially kicked me out of the room. Um, thank you, but, you know, please leave. And I did. I felt terrible. And I thought, did I make a mistake by telling them this information? And about a day and a half later, I went up to her 
room in, on, on the floor. She was now being cared for by a ward team. She was out of the ICU. And I walked in, and I was kind of nervous because I knew they were angry at me. And when I walked in the room, I saw her sitting there with a big, huge smile on her face. She was ready to go home. And she was talking to her daughter who was at home, on, and she was, her face was on the iPad. And I heard her daughter saying, Mom, which bottles should I open? And when, when this patient saw me come in the room, she smiled and said, Hey, Dr. Zitter, you know, Becky's at home getting ready to open a nice bottle of wine. I'm going home with hospice. And in that day and a half, they had processed what was happening. They had heard what I had said. They had dealt with it and decided that she wanted to live her life. And she got another four weeks at home with hospice. Her bed was in the living room. They had a wonderful time. Her funeral was beautiful. Everyone just, it was a celebration of a beautiful life. And if we hadn't had that conversation, I think she would have continued on the end-of-life conveyor belt and died on machines. Wow, that that really is a a very beautiful story and one that I think really serves as a a, a lesson for all of us why it's important to pay attention, have these conversations and I think also bridge the gap between fear and loathing of the doctor. And I hate to say that because you're a lovely doctor, clearly, but a lot of us um, are very anxious. You know, we see the doctor as an authority figure. And I think there's a a lesson in that, too. I think we doctors have a lot of work to do in terms of making this experience less hierarchical. And I, I personally am a, I'm a huge advocate for making this more of a collaboration. And I think the doctor that needs to be welcoming and, and, and welcoming in and inviting in patient and family into this, into this conversation about what to do next because the doctor may be the, you know, the, the expert in the disease, but the doctor is not the expert in you. And so for us to think that we know how to make decisions about patients who are nearing the ends of their lives is, is hubris, honestly. It's not, it's, it's not realistic. We don't have the information that you have about what is best for you. And so we need to form a collaboration with you, um, informing you of what's going on and how things are looking medically, and then really requesting from you more information about where to go next. And I think this also speaks to how American doctors certainly are being educated to possess a more empathetic and compassionate bedside manner. It's not sympathy that we want. We want you to walk in our shoes with us and give us feedback. Like, if you were in my situation, what would you do, doctor? Which humanizes you. Right. And doctors are very uncomfortable doing that. Um, We have been taught that you know, patient autonomy is the most important thing of all. And for us, patient autonomy has kind of taken on this meaning of, well, let the patient decide what the patient wants to do. And we've sort of almost abdicated ourselves. We've taken ourselves out of the relationship. I mean, how can you expect a patient and family to know what to do in these complex medical situations? It's, it's, it's not, you know, it, it, it's hard enough for us doctors to know necessarily, uh, but to expect a patient to just be making decisions you know, without our input and, and support and suggestions, I think is not is not realistic. We're almost out of time, but as you were speaking, something popped into my mind, the word servant leadership, because the work that physicians and, and um, the healing arts practitioners do is very much a service-based uh, industry or industries, but there's also a leadership aspect, you know, like we're, we're, we're teaching others how to live or in your case, how to die. And 
I'm wondering if there might be a reframe or another way of looking at the way we relate with our doctors and our doctors to our patients, keeping that in mind, this servant leadership concept. Hmm. It's interesting. Um, I think it's a really interesting way to put it. I guess I would. it's the same thing that I'm advocating for in a sense, which is this collaboration, that we're a team. We, we've got to be working together in order to get the best results. And, um, and so I think it's, I think it's, I, I hope you see that as a similarity. To me, that, that seems like what you're talking about. We, we yes. need to be working together as a team. Yes. And, and, and it's that team effort that brings um, the consciousness of this process into the exquisite, intimate place that it really does reside. The book, once again, is Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. My guest today has been Dr. Jessica Zitter, MD. You can connect with her at her website, jessicazitter.com, on Twitter at Jessica Zitter, and on Facebook, Jessica Zitter. We're going to take a break. Here come the tunes. And when we come back, there'll be more. Thank you, Dr. Zitter. Thanks so much for having me. A pleasure, a real pleasure. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Samuel Harrington and Dr. Jessica Nuttick-Zitter, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.